From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in this hour, evangelicals and politics. What would Jesus do about Donald Trump? We'll ask Sarah Posner of The Nation Institute. She's been reporting on evangelical politics for a long time. Also, Nation magazine columnist Gary Young wrote an award-winning book about kids killed by guns. I'll ask him what it's been like to talk about kids killed by guns on call-in shows on talk radio. First up, Chris Hayes and how we got from the events in Ferguson to the election of you-know-who. His new book is A Colony in a Nation. Salon called it a dark book for a dark time. Chris, of course, is the Emmy award-winning host of All In with Chris Hayes, weeknights on MSNBC. He's also an editor-at-large of The Nation. A Colony in a Nation entered the New York Times bestseller list at number two this week. Chris Hayes, congratulations on the book, and welcome back. Uh, It's great to be here. Well, one of the reasons I'm eager to talk with you about this book is simple. We could have 10 minutes of Trump-free talk before we turn to the inevitable questions. I'm afraid that you're driving away your listenership, though. (laughs) I think that this is the the opposite of the pitch that I'm supposed to do, which is like, oh, this really explains Trump. To understand Trump, you need to read this book. (laughs) Well, first, first remind us of some numbers, the number of people incarcerated in America, the crime rate in America, the changes in the crime rate in America. Right now, the United States, there's a lot of ways to talk about what a problem mass incarceration is. But I think the most effective statistic is that the U.S. is 5% of the world's population. Um, if you take every prisoner in the world, one out of every four of them is an American. Mm. Every prison in China, every prison in India, in Argentina, in Brussels, in Belgium, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, oh. in Mexico, in the U.S. I mean, it's a crazy statistic. So there's just nothing like what we've built here. Um, and that and that's countries free and unfree, right? I mean, we're not. Well, a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, Western Europe, OECD countries as a sort of comparison cohort. This is like everyone. And the reason <laughs> the reason we have so many of our fellow citizens in in jail is because of the crime wave. How? What is the crime wave? What happens from 1966 roughly to 1991 is an explosion in crime in the United States. Um, and it happened across all categories of crime, across geographical areas, cities large and small. Um, and you go from you know something like the number of homicides in '66, you you have four times as many by '79. The New York City crime rate, this is my favorite statistic, is that there are 2,500 murders in New York City, right? Roughly 2,500 murders in New York City in 1991. Last year there were 350. Ooh. So what you, you have is this in, incredible explosion of crime that happens in the country from 66 to 91, and then a, a reversal, a stunning and unanticipated reversal that basically goes from 91 to 2014, 2015, and now we're in the midst of a, a very unclear moment, whether it's the, the, the rates going up or down. If you think about this sort of you know up-ramp and down-ramp, during that period of time, 66 to 91, is when the politics of law and order come to the fore, dominate both parties. And not just at the, the highest level of president. I mean, every DA race, every state rep race, state senators, um, mayors, city council members, tough, 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 get tough. 
roll them up. And I, I talk about in the book the sort of seduction of the call for order and what law and order really means, the idea of sort of being able to control a group of people to keep yourself secure. And that produces the mass incarceration. The, the final thing I'll say on this statistically that's important is that in the beginning when the crime wave starts in the United States, you see incarceration go up. And that would actually be expected, right? If you had a society with four times as many murders, you would expect to see more prisoners. But what's crazy is that after the inflection point is hit in 1991, crime starts going down and the prison population somehow keeps going up, keeps going up. So it's like it has become detached from the inputs in a certain way and not just detached from the inputs, but I think there's almost this, uh, it's, I call in the book, uh, it's like a cargo cult. It, there's mm. this superstition that is deeply embedded in policymakers and politicians, mm. which is that um, if we take our foot off the grass, if we don't do the thing that we did yesterday, if we don't do the rain dance correctly, crime will come back. We have to keep doing all of this because otherwise crime will come back. A colony in a nation is mostly about how crime is treated differently depending on where you are in our society. You have uh, some personal experience to, to uh, testify to us about the 2000 Republican National Convention in Philadelphia. This is where George W. Bush was being nominated to run against, uh, what was his name again? Uh, Al Gore. <laughs> Al Gore. You were there. You were young. You were going to the convention. Uh, how did things go for you at the Republican National Convention in 2000? So my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I uh, decided to go down from New York where we were living that summer to meet up with her father, who's a political reporter, and and sort of go see it as a kind of sociological undertaking. Like, we thought it would be interesting, like, to go see the Republican convention. Her dad was there. He would get us in. And we go down, and as we're going through the security checkpoint and we put our bags for metal detectors, I recall that I have about $30 worth of weed in my eyeglass case. Weed. Weed. The demon weed. And uh, and I'm like, oh, God. Whoa. Shoot. Why did I do that? And then we go through one checkpoint and another checkpoint. We got the final checkpoint, and I notice that they are searching the bags, not just metal detectors. And... Uh, a Philly police officer goes through the bag. He takes out the eyeglass case. He's about to put it back in, but then he feels the weight and he shakes it and he snaps it open and his head jerks back, having discovered the drugs. He calls over two of his associates and the three men stand shoulder to shoulder conferring with their back to me. And I feel completely terrified. I feel this sort of pulsing in my temples and this overriding <laughs> instinct to run away. And I am so terrified and want to be bailed out of the situation so badly that I tell my girlfriend's father, future father-in-law, like, uh, Andy, I think the cops just found weed in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> and to his great credit, he's extremely chill about it. He's just sort of bemused, like, why would you bring weed here? <laughs> Which was a good question. <laughs> yes. And the, finally, the cops are done conferring, and they, they, they put a bag down on the table for me to take it. And I think that's the moment that, like, they will slap the cuffs on. And I sort of make eye contact with the police officer, and nothing happens. And I go inside, and the weed's still in there. And, and the weed is still in there. Yes, they, they, they didn't even confiscate it. So the police not only let you go, they were, they were kind enough to give you back <laughs> your weed. Extremely thoughtful. But Freddie Gray in the back of that Baltimore police van right. or, or Sandra Bland in that Texas jail cell for I mean, basically Freddie... nothing, they, they did not experience kindness at no. the hands of the police. No, that's right. And, and one of the most... One of the things I learned in writing and reporting before I wrote the book is 
the amount of latitude an individual police officer has in any given moment is sort of amazing, right? I mean, there's policies and procedures, of course, but in the moment, they have tremendous latitude, authority, and discretion. And when I've interviewed cops, they say that's actually really important for us to do our job. And there's really something to that. They are constantly in situations that are unstable, chaotic, tense, and they're attempting to bring to bear a whole bunch of different tactics in that moment to manage and control the situation, not let it get out of control. So the latitude and authority is, is part of them having the toolkit to do their job. At the same time, when you have systematic bias throughout the system, when you have a law and order mentality that is um, what, what some scholars have described a kind of warrior mentality on the part of cops, when you view the citizens as enemies, there's a line <clears throat> in the Baltimore Patterns and Practices report where it says, do not treat criminals like citizens. Think about that, right? So it, when, you, when you have all that mentality running through you and you marry that to that amount of latitude and authority, you can get an experience on the wrong side of it that feels like tyranny, dictatorship. Yeah just outright oppression and, and humiliation, or you can get, you know, benevolence. <laughs> um, and, and, and I was the, you know, I think probably because of the situation I was in, because I think, honestly, I think he didn't know whose senator's son I might be, right? Like yeah. he's the convention and Lord knows what huge rigmarole may have ensued from a possession arrest of some kid, at the, you know? You know, I was given a free pass. And yeah, Freddie Gray, Freddie Gray's infraction was that he made eye contact with a police officer and then started moving swiftly in the other direction, which as a free citizen is your right, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Sandra Bland didn't uh, signal a lane change. Mm. Walter Scott, who was, who was shot in the back uh, in North Charleston when he was fleeing police, uh, was pulled over because one of the three brake lights on his car did not work. Well, the key insight here is that the problem between poor black communities and the people who run the police and courts in America is not a problem of the breakdown of the system. What you argue in a colony in a nation is this is the system itself. This is the system of policing poor and working class people. And this is how it works. Yes, we can. I mean, we constructed the system by we. I mean, we, a majority of voters, we as citizens, we as white people, as white voters. <laughs> I'm speaking now in the first person sort mm-hmm. of collectively here. The emotional appeal of law and order and the way the system was constructed was an appeal to boundaries, to keeping people that threaten you away from you and in your place, to keeping them under thumb, um, and to maintain, above all else, order. Richard Nixon says in 1968 at his convention speech uh, where he uses the phrase a colony and a nation, which is the book title. He also says it's time for some frank order about frank talk tonight about the problem of order in the United States. And that the power of that idea is that from the very first moments this country began, from the first diary entry from the captain of the ship that landed at Jamestown, which is the savages set upon us as soon as we made sure. This this deeply embedded in our cultural and political DNA is this white fear, is this fear of the disordered other, the fear of what's out past the clearing, the Comanches a day's ride on the frontier, way on the frontier, the slaves under whip who might rebel at any moment. This is deep in who we are. And when you cultivate that white fear, you are enriching political uranium for a nuclear weapon. 
And that white fear was cultivated over years and years. And it was aided by a real thing that was happening, which was the crime really was going up and it really was wreaking havoc, um, particularly in, in poor and black communities where it was like a crisis. It still is in many. And the power of that meant that the solution was essentially to keep to, – to, to sort of disconnect these two domains, the colony and the nation, right? To, to sort of preserve your sanctity and security, your due process, your liberty here by taking all those things away there. One of the great things about a colony in a nation is it's a lot of uh, personal stuff. You, you are brave enough to talk about your own experience of white fear – Growing up in uh, in New York City, yeah, I I grew up in New York. I grew up in the Bronx, um, which is a, a you know a, a overwhelmingly Latino and Black borough. Um, and I commuted down to to Manhattan to go to high school. That was on the border of East Harlem, which is a predominantly Black and Latino poor neighborhood, and and Upper East Side, which is very affluent, very white. And we were there in 1991, 92, at the peak crime years, and we just got jacked all the time like <laughs> like run your loot run your bus pass let me see your wallet hat snatched backpack snatched and i just moved through the city in a constant state of kind of like heightened almost animal mm. fight or flight sensitivity i mean the way that i looked the sort of way i would scan streets the, the there was just this constant fear and anxiety but the offer on the table is to be liberated from that, to feel safe and secure, and don't worry about <laughs> what's happening in other parts of the city. And this brings us at last to Donald Trump, runs for president against uh, the bad guys out there, yeah. uh, folks, the rapists and the murderers. You make a wonderful point that the New York that you're describing is also the New York of Donald Trump. Absolutely. And, and in fact... His experience of New York in that period, I think, is formative and also is precisely what allowed him to connect to voters across the country in totally different circumstances, right? So yeah. at one level, it's like how does a billionaire real estate heir uh, who's never lived anywhere but New York connect to the voters of Mahoning County, Ohio and Erie County, Pennsylvania or McDowell County, West Virginia? I mean, there was one point when he was in Iowa where he's in front of a crowd and he's talking about his contract renegotiation with NBC. And I'm just like watching the crowd be like, what are you What are you talking about? Like complaining about like his contract. But what he was able to connect on is he was in New York in a period where A, it was experiencing a tangible sense of decline. Things are on the wrong trajectory. They're going downward. The city is getting worse. And it is coming unraveled because of some – racialized other, the drug dealers, the gangs, the thugs, the muggers. The, he was able to take that core formative worldview, decline at the cost of the other, and go out to places and sell it to people that were that are in genuine decline. Mahoning County and Erie County, those places are in decline. McDowell County is in decline. He was able to say, you're in decline and here's the reason. And when he says build a wall, to me, that's the that's the perfect metaphor. It's it's exactly it, it is broken windows on a national scale. Yeah. It's it's because when you think about the border, the border is occupying some psychological space that used to be occupied with they say subway graffiti. 
in New York City. It's this sign that we, we're not in control and that there's and that the, the things are disordered. In a tangible sense, it's like if you're a Mahoning County voter in Ohio, like what the hell do you care about the border? <laughs> like, like why is that? Why is that stressing you? Like honestly, why is that stressing you out? Why? What is what is going on there? What's going on there is this this neurotic sense of a lack of control, and. That's what Rudy Giuliani was all about. That's what the message he delivered to New York. It was not an accident that Giuliani was one of his top surrogates. It's not an accident that his that the worldview of Donald Trump was formed in New York in that period that he took out a full page ad calling for the death penalty for the, the Central Park jogger, mm-hmm. accused perpetrators later exonerated. That is such a powerful appeal. And we saw its power in the election. The book is A Colony in a Nation. You can read an excerpt at thenation.com right now. Chris Hayes, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about how Donald Trump hijacked the religious right. For that, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's a journalist at the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute and author of God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. Her reporting on religion and politics has appeared in the American Prospect, Salon, The Washington Spectator, The Washington Post, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome. Thank you. Well, return with us now to August 2015, six months before the first primary, when Donald Trump's presidential ambitions were considered by most people to be a joke. What did Trump look like at that point to evangelical leaders? Evangelical leaders were pretty skeptical of him. They've had a playbook for some decades now by which they vet presidential candidates. And that playbook requires the presidential candidates to describe their own religious piety, to describe their own salvation in Jesus Christ, and to also adhere to several litmus tests relating to their opposition to LGBT rights or their opposition to abortion, and currently their their dedication to what the religious right frames as religious freedom, which are exemptions from having to comply with, say, the contraception requirement under the Affordable Care Act or LGBT rights because of their supposed religious objections to those things. Trump had none of those qualities. He was not a religious man. He could not cite a Bible verse to save his life. He'd been married three times. He was a known philanderer. And he had very recently come to his quote-unquote pro-life position. So he seemed like an incredibly unlikely candidate for the religious right, particularly because the rest of the field had many evangelical favorites in it, including Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, among others. You mentioned the question he was asked about what was his favorite Bible verse. First, he was asked what his favorite book was. And of course, he knew the right answer there, the Bible. But then when they asked what his favorite verse was, do you remember what his answer was? He said, I don't want to get into it because to me, that's very personal. Yeah, just preposterously hilarious. He was once asked whether he was an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy, and he said both of them. (laughs) That's, that's, That's the safe answer, I guess. So that's how evangelical leaders viewed him. At the beginning of the primary season, how was he doing with evangelical voters? 
Well, see, there was the difference. Evangelical voters were going for him. Now, of course, the field was split among 17 candidates. So, you know, he was, you know, back in the early days of the primary polling, you know, 20% of white evangelical voters, which was pretty good considering he was splitting the field um, with 16 other people. Now, um, one of the earliest evangelical leaders to endorse him was Jerry Falwell Jr., the heir to his father's uh, Liberty University empire. And Falwell uh, endorsed him despite the fact that he didn't uh, adhere to the religious right playbook. And he told me when I interviewed him last spring that he was actually following the lead of rank-and-file evangelical voters who clearly saw something in Trump, in his view, um, that it was more important to make America great again than it was to worry about all of these other issues that the religious right had traditionally been worried about. And then when November 8th came, and it was a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, how did evangelical voters, and I guess here we're we're talking mostly about white evangelical voters, how did they vote? Well, that was an easy choice for them. They've been inculcated for a couple of decades now with the idea that the Clintons are evil incarnate. Top that off with a big dose of misogyny, and you've got 81% of white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump. 81%. If we look at the issues that evangelicals care about, is it fair to say number one is abortion? I think that's fair to say. And I think that they were willing to make a deal with Trump. The evangelical leaders were willing to make a deal with Trump because he promised them uh, Supreme Court justices that were dedicated to overturning Roe versus Wade. And they were thrilled when he nominated Neil Gorsuch. So despite the fact that Gorsuch was cagey about that issue in his confirmation hearings, clearly Trump and the religious right know something about him that the rest of us couldn't confirm because they wouldn't be thrilled about him if they weren't confident that he was willing to overturn Roe. Had Trump ever been anti-abortion before this campaign? No, only to the extent that in 2011, he went on the Christian Broadcasting Network, which is the television network founded by Pat Robertson, another pioneer of the religious right, and was given the opportunity by CBN's uh, Washington correspondent, David Brody, to explain his pro-life conversion, which entailed uh, him, I think, talking to a friend about seeing a sonogram or something like that. It was something pretty vague. Something pretty vague. So you've suggested that evangelical leaders in particular were willing to endorse Trump in exchange for, indeed, the payback they have gotten, most important, getting Neil Gorsuch nominated. What what would Jesus do? Would Jesus have been pragmatic about achieving policy goals? Well, I'm no theologian. (laughs) And truth be told, you know, there are a lot of evangelical leaders, pastors, some people in national leadership positions who were, you know, never that thrilled with Trump and didn't endorse him. Yet you don't hear a lot of pushback from them at this point, even on Trump policies that they don't like. For example, um, some of them are opposed to his uh, immigration and refugee policies. But there hasn't been a ton of outrage on that. There has been a lot of praise of the Gorsuch pick, though. 
And there's been some other forms of payback. Looks like they're going to get what they want on the religious freedom exemption. Maybe we should talk a little bit about what evangelicals mean by religious freedom. Well, if your listeners are familiar with the Hobby Lobby case that the Supreme Court decided a couple of years ago, that case allowed uh, the owners of a closely held corporation to say, we have a religious objection to covering certain kinds of birth control in our company-sponsored insurance plan, even though that contraception is a a copay-free benefit under the Affordable Care Act. We have a religious objection to those. The Supreme Court said, hey, you know what? You're right. You don't have to provide that kind of coverage to your employees. The religious right would like to extend that holding into virtually every area of life, uh, ranging from owners of businesses um, and how they treat their employees and customers to government clerks and whether they have to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, um, owners of private establishments and whether they have to serve same-sex couples or transgender people or women who've had abortions, and also even um, government contractors, faith-based social service providers who receive government funding. They would like to see them get all kinds of religious exemptions from who they have to serve or who they have to employ and whether they have to uh, comply with non-discrimination laws. So uh, there's a draft executive order floating around uh, in the Trump administration that would very broadly and staggeringly uh, allow for these kinds of religious exemptions. Um, Parts of it are probably unconstitutional, um, but since I... um, broke the story back in February about the existence of this order. Um, It seems like it's still floating around and um, legal minds are working on perhaps modifying it a little bit. But the religious right, including groups like the Family Research Council and Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation, all are pressing the Trump administration to sign this thing, wanting the president to sign it into law. You uh, started out a couple of years ago at the at the beginning of the political season, interviewing these uh, conservative white evangelical leaders, as you say, most of them who opposed Trump. What has happened to them uh, since the election? Are they still skeptical or opposed to him? Do they have any followers or any credibility left with their own people? Well, the most famous example of that is Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was the most visible, vocal, and widely published evangelical opponent of Trump. Uh, After Trump won, uh, Moore, who's the head of the basically the lobbying arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, a Washington-based organization called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Um, after um, Trump took office, very prominent uh, megachurch pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention who had backed Trump um, before the general election, during the primary season, really came after Moore. Um, They spoke to the Wall Street Journal. They talked about their congregations potentially withholding funds from the ERLC. Um, He was depicted as, you know, essentially like a traitor to the cause. Um, And he basically backed away. He basically wrote a blog post in which he said that, you know, perhaps he had been too strident in his views and he wanted to have reconciliation with his fellow Southern Baptists. 
there was a big meeting with another heavy hitter Southern Baptist leader, and things seem to have quieted down. So you, there is still some opposition to Trump coming mostly from evangelical leaders who work in refugee resettlement uh, because of the Muslim ban. But these are not typically heavy hitter political guys. Some of them are, but they've really spoken out exclusively on the Muslim ban and haven't more broadly opposed Trump for other reasons. Sarah Posner's article on how Donald Trump hijacked the religious right appeared in The New Republic, reported in partnership with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute. Sarah, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk with Gary Young about his new book, Another Day in the Death of America. Ten children killed by guns on one day in America, a typical day. That's the subject of the book Gary Young has written. He's a columnist for The Nation, a fellow at The Nation Institute, and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. The book was just awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. The prize is awarded by the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. Gary Young joins us now from London. Gary, welcome back and congratulations on the award. Well, thanks for having me, John, and uh, thank you. It was a great honor. Well, another day in the death of America is the the saddest and and the most horrifying book I've read in a long time. How did you find the kids and their stories? The process of finding them was was often quite difficult. I mean, first of all, I had to find out who had died on that day, and that was a series of deep Google searches. But then I actually had to physically find their families so that I could find out about them. Part of the logic of the book was, look, we know how these children died, but I would like to know how they lived, what made them laugh, what they wanted to be. I mean, one of the boys got no more than 84 words in the Dallas Morning News. That was was it. None of them made the national news. And so finding their families was, uh, you know, it was real old school shoe leather stuff. I would go to the funeral parlors. I would go to the the people that buried them. A couple of times, I literally just walked down the street asking people. And then there was Facebook. I got a couple of them through family members on Facebook. Uh, And I managed to reach eight of the ten, eight of their kinfolk. Nine, actually, I managed to reach. One of them said they didn't want to speak to me, and one of them I just couldn't reach. I'd like to talk about just one or two of them. Let's start with Jaden Dixon. Mm. Well, Jaden is the first boy to be shot in the book, which just takes a 24-hour day and starts with the first child who's shot and ends with the last. Jaden, he was nine years old, and he grew up in um, a small suburb of of Ohio. And um, he answered the door the morning, the, what, the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, he answered the door. There was, a, there was a, a ring of the door. They thought it was a couple of girls from down the road who would come to kind of borrow sugar sometimes or ask for a lift. And he pulled the door back as though he was going to jump out and say boo. But when nobody came in, he poked his head around the door and it was his mother's ex-partner and, and the father of Jaden's eldest brother 
who shot Jaden straight in the head and then uh, sped off. And this was in a shootout with the police and, and um, was killed. Danny Thornton, his name was. Danny had several times threatened a range of people. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to shoot her. And as one of Jaden's mom's friends said, there was a bit of you that believed that he could do it, but you couldn't just wrap your head around that. What human being could kind of wrap your head around what that would, what that would be. And so, you know, when it actually happened, of course, it was an almost impossible thing to fathom. And one of the family friends who was in his team said, every day I put myself in more danger than Jaden did in his whole life. You know, Jaden liked to play with Nerf guns and kind of hang out with his friend Sydney at the, at the after school club. And, you know, him and Sydney as a girl were going to get married. Jaden was going to be in the army. Sydney was going to be a singer. Jaden was a kind of cute nine-year-old kid in Grove City. And then, and then this. When you talk to the families, you had these heartbreaking conversations, but they said some amazing and unexpected things. Uh, let's talk about the mother of 18-year-old Tashan Anderson. Her name was Regina. He was a black teenager from Chicago, killed in a gang-related incident. What did his mother tell you about that? So it was uh, Tashan's godmother. She, she described Tashan as a boy who had power in the street. By which she meant Tashawn had killed people. If I picked another day, I would have been reporting on someone that Tashawn had killed and not Tashawn. Uh, or she, she put it, he had bodies under his belt. So she was waiting for the call. She assumed there would be a call. And she said, in a very conflicted way, of course, however perverse it sounds, there was some relief that when the call finally came, because first of all, I knew that I wouldn't have to wait for that call anymore. And secondly, I knew that he couldn't kill anybody else. <sighs> and she loved him, you know, and she, she knew him from, you know, when he was in his mother's belly. So she knew what, what a sweet kid he could be, that he could be a sweet kid. He would write her from prison. This was not someone being cavalier. This was someone really saying something hard and tender at the same time. And one of the, one of the things that really came through for me while writing the book was the degree to which for black parents, this was a thing that they always had to contend with. Not because their kids were in gangs, because most of them weren't, but because, because if, if you're in a working class area of a city and you're African-American, there's a good chance your kid might get shot. And so you have to prepare yourself for that. So one of the mothers in Dallas that I spoke to, whose son was killed, when I said, did you think this could happen? She said, well, I didn't think it would happen to him. I thought it would be his brother. Father in Newark said, I think you're not doing your job properly as a black father in Newark if you don't think your kid could be shot. You have to kind of bear that in mind. Yeah. And that was a revelation to me, even as a black parent myself, the degree to which people were walking around with that level of anxiety. Well, let's talk about what's happened since the book came out. You've gotten a lot of great reviews. You've gotten a bunch of awards. What about the, the response from uh, readers, uh, both uh, in the United States and, and uh, elsewhere? Well, the response in Britain has been uh, great, and the book sold very well. And it's one of those things, Americans don't 
either don't quite understand or fetishize, depending on their politics. The two things I found in my 12 years of reporting for America that other people don't understand about America, one is guns and the other is health care. Why would you want guns? Why wouldn't you want health care? That is basically, you know, the two things that as a reporter I couldn't ever quite convey. In Britain, certainly, it doesn't matter how conservative the audience is otherwise, they think, well, yeah, that's obviously crazy. If that number of kids are being killed, that you, well, you have to do something about that. And because it goes all around the country, from you know, San Jose to Newark, it gives people a flavor of what life in America, for working class folk, is, is, is like. Uh, the response in America was more complicated, as one would expect it to be, I think. It was well-reviewed. It has sold very well so far. It hasn't sold badly, I don't think. But it came out shortly before the election. And America has been somewhat preoccupied, let us say, <laughs> yes, with uh, other, other factors. And so the, the space that there might be to reflect on an issue like this in this moment, there's just less space. But it's also true, some of the radio programs that I've been on, where people have called in who are gun rights enthusiasts. And this book is not a book about gun control. It is a book about what, about what happens in a country without gun control. And I make that very clear. And I say, you know, in no other country would this book be possible. And to some people, some Americans, that is a provocation. Yeah. Uh, and so they want to talk about parenting and uh, feral children and and a range of things to which I say, look, I don't think American parents are any worse than parents anywhere else in the world. I don't think American kids are any worse. So I don't think you can talk about that. I don't think that makes any sense. If that was the case, everywhere else would be having the same problem. And then they also want to talk about the Second Amendment. Yeah. And I don't really want to talk about the Second Amendment because I think that it's like debating scripture. It's just not very useful. It's like trying to understand terrorism through the Quran or the Bible. It's just not going to get you anywhere. And what I say to them is, I'm not American, so this is not my amendment because it's not my constitution. You can keep that and you can interpret it how you like, although you must understand it's an interpretation. What I would like to know is how do you keep these children alive and keep that amendment hmm. in the way that you interpret it. Let's not talk about your right to own this weapon, which I'm not going to contest. I'm just going to leave it out there. Let's talk about these children, my children. I have two American children. Let's talk about how we keep children alive because seven children every day get shot dead. And like I say, in no other country in the world is that possible. My last question for you, what was it like for you to write this book? It was, a, it was a weird mixture. There were a few things. There was, it's difficult. It's difficult approaching families, bereaved families, listening to 911 calls, seeing the last posts on Facebook and the last tweets. I mean, you can't not get involved. I used to call them, you know, someone would say, oh, I'm off to Dallas. And I'd say, well, one of my kids died there. And they'd be like, what, what are you talking about? You only got oh. two kids. But I felt... I felt connection to these kids and their families and a responsibility to them. So there was that. It's impossible not to think of your own kids when you're doing this yeah. and their vulnerability. But also there was a sense of excavation that here were these stories, none of which had really been told, 
all of which were hiding in plain sight. And so, when, you know, when I found the families and could get them to talk and could get their trust, I felt like it was that rare moment as a journalist where you feel that you are adding something as opposed to repeating something or reflecting something that you were adding something. That here is a small town in North Carolina. A child has died. They have a 400-word piece which barely mentions them at all. You managed to find their family, and you managed to find out pretty much everything that you can about them. I remember saying to my wife, I'm delighted and honored to get the award. I'm also very relaxed about whatever happens to the book. I remember saying to my wife, I don't care if nobody reads this book. I'm just glad I'm writing it. And uh, I, st- I still feel that. The book is Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. Naomi Klein says it was brilliantly reported, quietly indignant, and utterly gripping, a book to be read through tears. It was just awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. The author is Gary Young. Gary, thanks for this book. Congratulations again on this prize, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks a lot, Jim. All the best. Finally, victory in the American women's hockey strike. For that story, you'll want to listen to this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. The women's hockey players won a lot more money, plus the same amount of meal money as the men's team. They now are going to get $50 per diem on non-travel days. Before this, the women's per diem was about $24. And most importantly for the team, there will be finally a commitment to develop youth hockey for girls and greater promotion for the women's game. It's a great segment on the new episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.